Good morning. It is great to be here with you, and I'm just uh, thrilled to get to see my good friend uh, John Mabry again. Uh, he and I were in the same presbytery for a number of years, and when he uh, moved away, we don't get to see each other as much, but it's just a treat. And certainly had heard about your church and uh, John and Catherine moving back here to their hometown, and what a joyful thing it is to be here with you today. Let me pray as we uh, come to uh, God's Word, and then uh, we'll read the Scriptures, and I want to share with you some this morning. Let's uh, pray together. Lord, thank you so much that we can be in this place where we can lift our voices in adoration, we can confess our sins jointly, we can pray, we can now come to hear your holy word and how grateful we are that this book has been preserved and uh, we can read its words and be nourished uh, by the word of life. I pray that you'd be with us now and speak to us all by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. When John asked me to come and uh, around the topic of the 500th anniversary of the uh, Protestant Reformation, you know, I kind of scratched my head and think, okay, now he wants me to preach on Sunday too. What text should I preach on that would be appropriate? And um, maybe I lost my mind for a few moments when I decided on the text today, but I thought I'm going to speak on probably the most controversial text of the 16th century that Protestants and Catholics kind of went toe-to-toe over the meaning of this text. And the reason I'm going to do it is not to be controversial. It's because the meaning of it captures the essence of what Luther's reform and what the gospel's all about. And I think you'll see this as we read. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 16. Now, I'm going to read a, uh, a number of verses, and we'll hit some highlights in the message today. So it may be a few more verses than you're used to for a sermon text. But I think you have to look at this whole passage, because together it has a very uh, strong affirmation here. So let me begin with verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, other Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples that no one to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told the disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, may God bless uh, the reading of his holy word. You know, we... uh, we sometimes wonder uh, when we consider all the different versions of what are perceived to be authentic Christianity uh, in our culture today, where is the real deal? What is the faith that was taught by the apostles? And I think it's a legitimate question to ask. And I want to suggest as we look at this text, there's probably no better place to look than at the words of Jesus himself. And again, this is a passage that obviously you probably recall that Roman Catholics like to cite to support the Roman Catholic papacy. And of course, Protestants push back against that, seeing more of an emphasis on the confession of Peter. But I think there's just some real jewels here that I want us to look at. Well, I thought it might be appropriate to begin this sermon with a Pope joke. So uh, I just trust that uh, Pope Francis will forgive me for this one as we look at this text. A lawyer and a pope were both killed in an accident, and they were in line there at the pearly gates with St. Peter. So he asked the lawyer and the pope to give them their names, and he looked down kind of his, his list, and, ah, you're both here. So follow me, and I will show you about your eternal dwelling. So they followed St. Peter, and sure enough, they came to this beautiful mansion. And uh, St. Pete turned to the lawyer and said, there is your eternal dwelling. And he was all excited and scampered off. Well, the Pope is thinking to himself, now look, this lawyer got this lavish mansion. Who knows what I'm going to get? I'm the head of the church on earth, and all that I've done for the Lord, this is going to be really exciting. So they... Stay on along the path, and finally they come to a beat-up old wooden shack. And St. Peter turns to the Pope and says, well, here's your home. The Pope says, well, wait a minute. I'm kind of confused here. This, this lawyer just got this wonderful mansion, and I'm getting this wooden shack. And Peter said, well, you've got to understand. We've got lots of Popes up here. We've had lots of them, but that's the first lawyer we've had <laughs> up here. I, I, I probably should apologize to all the lawyers in the house, too. Some of my best friends are lawyers. Now, if you lived in the 16th century, uh, you were convinced that none of the popes that you knew were in heaven. Very strong feelings about that. In fact, one of the uh, infamous little pieces that Martin Luther wrote in 1545 was entitled... Against the Roman papacy, an institution of the devil. 
courses we talked about uh, during the Sunday school hour, Luther kind of just laid it all out there. It was his habit to say it and call it like he saw it. Well, this was written about a year before he died, and he was very uh, unapologetic about his approach. Well, in the treatise, Luther referred to the Pope as that papal hellish scum, that loathsome, accursed, atrocious monster in Rome. It's kind of unsettling for uh, modern persons to hear that, but this, again, is, uh, is classic Luther. Well, in the treatise, he talks about this passage, Matthew chapter uh, 16. And uh, he says, Now see the Pope and his papacy, what they derive from a distorted, falsified interpretation of Matthew 16, which is all cut out of lies and blasphemies. Well, a fellow reformer, John Calvin, was just as direct. When he looked at Matthew 16, he wrote, The Roman Antichrist, wishing to cloak his tyranny, has wickedly and dishonestly dared to pervert this whole passage. The church can have no other foundation than Christ, and it can be nothing less than blasphemy or sacrilege when the Pope contrives another foundation. Well, needless to say, as I mentioned earlier, this was a passage that uh, garnered no little attention and was really controversial in the 16th century. So there's a lot of writing about it during this era. How are we going to handle this passage in Matthew, which had been so fundamental to understanding uh, the papacy? And, of course, Luther is calling a lot of uh, uh, questions about this. All right. So the Protestants tended to look at this passage and say, no, no, I think the church has kind of misunderstood this. But... Rather than just discount the passage, this is one of those texts that we're not going to deal with. They said, no, actually, on the other hand, this is a central text to the understanding of the faith. John Calvin said that Peter's confession here, quote, embraces all that is contained in our salvation. Luther said that in these few words of Peter is included the whole of the gospel, indeed all of Holy Scripture. So isn't that rather fascinating? A text that they really uh, abhorred in terms of it justifying the papacy said, but actually it incorporates the entire essence of the gospel. So what about this statement? Well, the reformers believe that Peter's glorious confession, you can look at the words, look at your Bible, verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Indeed, that's the central point of this passage. Now, I'm going to try to have three uh, points today. Good sermons typically have three. And what I'd like to look at as we go through this passage together, who Jesus is, what he came to earth to do, and what are his expectations of his followers. Very simple essence of the Christian message. Now, one fascinating thing about this text is its geography, which is often overlooked. But Christ had come with his disciples. He'd gone to uh, Gentile territory, to Caesarea Philippi. And there was a mountain that was the uh, great prominent landmark there uh, in the city. So wherever Jesus and the disciples happened to be in that area, in the backdrop was this great mountain. And in the mountain was a cave, and in the back of that cave was the entrance to an underground waterway. Now, why is that important? Because in Caesarea Philippi, this was the home of the cult of the god Pan. 
who is pictured as kind of a half goat, half man. It goes all the way back to the third century. But you see, everyone in Jesus' day knew that that's what this city was about, the cult of the worship of the god Pan. Well, here's what they would do in that cave. Ritual sacrifices would be offered to the god Pan. They would go to the back of the cave and they would cast these sacrifices into the waters. And if the bodies disappeared, then they knew that the god had received their sacrifice. So I just want you to think about that as Jesus is getting ready to unfold uh, this teaching to his people. They are in this area where uh, pagan worship was very prominent. It was just the landmark that everyone (laughs) saw. Now, the other thing that's very uh, important for uh, thinking about uh, this text is some information that the Jewish historian Josephus gives us. In addition to this, he tells us that King Herod had built a temple to Caesar right there at the foot of the mountain. So here you had the center of uh, worship for both the emperor and this pagan god, And I think that's very significant to remember when uh, Jesus is offering uh, his words. And we'll see how it becomes very important uh, with some of the language that uh, Jesus uses. Well, the most prominent uh, part of this text, obviously, is the uh, bold declaration of St. Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, of course, what did uh, he understand by this? But, indeed, he is declaring that... Lord, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're not Elijah or a prophet. You are the son of the living God. Well, Jesus is obviously pleased with this. In fact, he turns to Peter and he lest Peter think he was a smart guy that figured this out. He said, Peter, the Lord has revealed this to you. This is not just because you're uh, a wise man. My father in heaven has made this known to you. And indeed, it was God's grace that had opened Peter's eye that he could use this language. You are the Christ, which is the word Messiah. And that was pretty bold. Well, then we get to this very interesting little word play that Jesus plays in this text. And he uses two Greek words, Petros and Petra. You can see where they could be uh, uh, confused. So when he turns to Peter... He says, you are the Petros, rock. That's what your name means, Peter. And then he says, and on this Petra, I will build my church. And uh, so Christ is uh, trying to uh, make clear uh, to Peter, uh, it appears, his importance and the importance of his confession. Now, this is where you get to the, uh, you know, difference of interpretations. Of course, Catholics would say that what Jesus is saying, that he's saying, well, Peter, on you and your successors, I'm going to build my church. Or is Christ indicating, no, Peter, it's your confession. This is what is the rock. Now, Luther had an interesting observation uh, on this passage, kind of unique. He suggests that at this point in time, Christ turns his hand toward himself and says, and on this rock, the church will be built. Rather interesting. Now, I'm not going to resolve that uh, issue in the few moments we have here, but I think uh, contemporary Bible scholars have made a good point to say Jesus probably was referring to Peter at this point, if you look at the text. 
But this text obviously has nothing to do with the succession of the bishops of Rome and the papacy. It's just not really there. So the main point is Peter's statement, and Christ affirms it. What Peter has just said in the hearing of all the disciples, that I'm a Messiah, the Son of God, this is true. And this truth will be the foundation of the church against which the gates of hell will not prevail. Uh, Some of your translations may have the gates of Hades. It can be translated either way, the place of the dead. Now, here's where the geography is important again. I want you to catch this and why Jesus uses this expression. Guess what? The entrance to this cave, remember I told you where the waterway was? In the back of the cave, it was considered an entrance to the underworld, the place of the dead. Guess what the entrance of that cave was called? The gates of Hades. Our Lord likely, in that context, is hard to miss. He's saying even what is represented in the great mountain here, these gates of Hades, it will not stand against my church. And so the Lord is uh, uh, making use of a good prop there, we might say, to make a point. Because what was there? A temple to, to Caesar, pagan worship. No, my church is going to overcome all of these things. And so this is a very significant uh, context to understand, and I think it helps explain why this is so important. Then Jesus continues. We get to another part of the passage, which has caused no little discussion. So Jesus continues in verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, again, uh, the tradition... One of the traditional Roman Catholics' understanding is to tie this to the papacy. In fact, the symbol of the papacy, coat of arms with the big mitre hat that the Pope wears and these huge keys on the papal shield, which are symbols of the keys of the kingdom from this particular text. It's based on this text. Now, again, Luther, and I'm just quoting him because, you know, he's kind of on the front row here as we uh, think about the anniversary of the Reformation, Luther said when a good Christian sees the Pope's coat of arms with those keys, he should spit on it for the glory of God. Well, that was just kind of Luther. You know, he just had such disdain for what he considered was the abuse of this uh, passage in the church's abuse of the people that, uh, like I said, he just kind of called it like it was. Well, I don't want to take time to... uh, Uh, go into uh, a lot of the detail here, but I do want to point out one particular uh, important factor, and you can just make a note of it in your Bible. This is one of two places where Jesus talks to the disciples. He says, what you shall uh, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And uh, In Matthew 18, he he says the very same thing. He's talking about them. Listen, I'm giving you authority in the church as my apostles to carry the message and to shepherd the sheep. What's important about Matthew 18, just a couple of chapters over, is Jesus is talking to all the disciples, and he says the same thing. So it's really, if you let Scripture interpret Scripture, he's not just speaking to Peter. He's talking about Peter among all the apostles. But it is a very important uh, text. Now, I just want you to imagine yourself being Peter at this time. Here's Peter... And the Lord had just affirmed him in such a powerful way and had seemed to say rather clearly, Hey, Peter, 
great confession. And upon this, I'm going to build my church. In fact, I'm going to give you the keys of heaven. Now, if I was Peter, I would be thinking, that is just amazing. He has said this to me. Because remember, there are a few times where it seemed like there was a little competition among the disciples, kind of human nature sometimes. And this is what kind of makes this whole passage uh, explode uh, in a deeper meaning as a result of what happens because Jesus is getting ready now to tell them about the rest of the story. Yes, I'm the Messiah. You nailed it. That's right. Peter, you're going to be a leader in the church. But then in verses 21 to 27, he begins to reveal to them, as Matthew tells the account, the fact that this Messiah is going to die. And at this point in the narrative in the New Testament, they're really confused about this. And this was kind of news to them. Matthew says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. That's verse 21. Now you notice what Peter did when he heard this. Now here's Peter, the rock man. He took Jesus aside and he, in effect, chastises him. He says, hey, Jesus, this is never going to happen to you. He appears to think that he's wiser than Jesus, and he tells him so. You know, maybe Peter's thinking to himself, you know, Jesus, this is not a good plan for you to die. Or maybe he's thinking to himself, listen, I've seen all your miracles. There is no way anybody's going to do this to you. You will not be killed. I've seen it. Well, it's quite brave for Luther, uh, excuse me, for Peter, in effect, to rebuke Jesus as he takes him aside. One gets the sense that maybe Peter's taken his prominence too seriously here. And what's shocking is that Peter, the rock man, who's feeling probably pretty good about himself, Jesus now calls him devil man. Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, in verse 22. Well, it's kind of hard to imagine saying something more harsh to anyone than, you're the devil. You're the devil. That's pretty strong words. And in fact, Jesus is telling Peter, you need to shut up and be quiet. You need to listen some more. You need to listen to more. There's more that I want to tell you. You don't fully understand what's going on. Literally, Jesus says to Peter, you're a stumbling block. Might be another word play here on the idea of rock. Well, as we know, the cross and the resurrection will be the centerpiece of apostolic preaching within the next few years. And in Matthew's gospel here, this becomes kind of the turning point in the whole gospel. Not only is Peter recognized he's the Messiah, but now they are beginning to get a glimpse Jesus is going to die and rise from the dead. It was a brand new idea to them at this point. And he will, in the remainder of the gospel, reveal that to them. The good news is more than just Jesus is the Son of God. It's also why the Son of God came to save the world through laying down his life. I've often thought to myself, what must Peter have thought in years later thinking, you know, that was about the most stupid thing I ever said to Jesus. Uh, probably more than once he thought that to himself 
in the years to come. The person and work of Christ, of course, are inseparable in the apostolic gospel. What I want you to know, Peter got it, and we have a very clear uh, indication of this. Just think about his sermon on Pentecost. I'll give you just a few of his words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, signs that God did through him. This Jesus you crucified, this Jesus God raised up again, and we are all witnesses that God has made him Lord and Christ. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is Peter the rock, rebuked by Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. In the coming years, preaching his bold sermon about the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the great day of Pentecost. I think we can say Peter came to understand the meaning of the cross. Now, some of you may be uh, C.S. Lewis fans. Uh, I think my mother has read every book the guy ever wrote. She is a great C.S. Lewis fan and and, uh, just many works. Well, in in his fantasy, The Great Divorce, is an interesting picture I want to share with you which I think captures uh, in many ways the meaning of the cross. In the great divorce, a man in hell is talking to a man from heaven. And he's kind of confused because the man in heaven had murdered someone named Jack. So the man from hell says, well, what I'd like to understand is what are you here for? You're a bloody murderer. I'd have thought that you ought to, it ought to be the other way around. I've gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man. I don't say I had no faults. Far from it. But I'd done my best, see? I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. So I don't see why I should put below you a bloody murderer. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. The murderer in heaven replied to the man in hell, Well, this is exactly what you needed to do. Ask for the bleeding Charity. The cross of Christ dashes human pride. And this is why it is such an offense. The natural human attitude, you mean you're telling me that I'm a moral failure? You must have me mixed up with somebody else. You know, apart from the supernatural work of the Spirit, no human being is willing to acknowledge his or her moral impotence. In our own Self-sufficiency, we don't want charity, we want to make our own way. The bleeding charity, as C.S. Lewis called it, is the gospel for lost sinners like you and me. For all human beings need the mercy of the cross. All right, let's look back at the text. What's been revealed? You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. The idea about the cross Uh, has been revealed, that these are inseparable. And we clearly see this in all the great statements of faith from the the early years, like the Apostles' Creed that talk about the death and the resurrection. But Matthew doesn't stop here in this full text. And so I want us to see this last part. It's often um, forgotten that uh, these important verses follow right on the heels of this great message about the person and work of Christ. Jesus is God. He will die and rise again, but there's still more. 
that uh, Jesus communicates here. Matthew seems to indicate that uh, apparently after this confrontation with Peter, Jesus turns back to the rest of the disciples and he says this in verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, while this message is spoken directly to the twelve, it is applicable to all followers of Christ. For Jesus does say, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, then he or she must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And indeed, that's what the, the Christian life is about, taking up the cross, denying self, losing one's life. And of course, um, any, any Jew hearing these things knew exactly what he was meant when he talked about taking up the cross, as often Roman criminals had to carry the cross to their own crucifixion. Well, you know, I think the message that Jesus has for his disciples here is very transparent. He essentially is making it very clear. Listen, this commitment to be my follower, this is not a half-hearted venture. I'm talking about denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following me. Christ's summons to self-denial is equally part of the messianic message. And you can't separate the wonderful confession of God's Son as Savior of the world without talking about the cost of discipleship. And Jesus even adds some incentive in this passage in verse 27. Look there. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. All authentic Christians acknowledge we are saved by the cross, and our sins are forgiven, absolutely, because what his Christ has done in dying in our place. But this truth, according to the words of Jesus, is inseparable from the cost of following him. Matthew 16 is making this connection in the clearest terms as the Lord explains the gospel of the kingdom to his disciples. The question arises, and maybe some of you are already thinking about this. Now wait, time out. If we start talking about the cost of discipleship, doesn't this become moralism? Doesn't this undermine the all-sufficiency of the death of Christ on the cross? Well, I'd like to suggest quite the opposite, because not to faithfully teach the cost of discipleship is is a distorted gospel. Jesus is uh, unfolding in more of its entirety the full picture for his disciples. And I don't know how Matthew could be more clear as he ties together the sufferings of Christ with the suffering of his disciples. And uh, he had told them about the suffering that might come. This cost of discipleship uh, is real. The messianic message of Jesus is a strong word for those who would, would follow. And, uh, of course, this, is, this taking up your cross and self-denial became a very uh, real experience for the disciples. With the exception of the apostle John, the tradition of the Christian church is the rest of the apostles died as martyrs. Indeed, they did pay the price. I think a question we can ask ourselves here, and I want you just to think about this, because it is a very sobering uh, exhortation here. Where are you, every one of you, this morning? Where are you in your discipleship before the Lord? You recognize him as Messiah and his death on the cross uh, on your behalf? 
Have you ever asked yourself this question? I think it's worthwhile every Christian to ask. Would I really be willing to die? Would I really be willing to die for Christ in this life? Of course, as we all know, many of our brothers and sisters around the world literally face that question. So this is not a hypothetical for many of Christ's followers. I think at the very least, what we should ask ourselves in 21st century America is this, in terms of self-denial. Am I living my Christian life with open hands? Am I living it with open hands? And what I mean by that, Lord, whatever you want. It's not about me, it's about you. What do you want? What do you want? What does he call us to do? How does he ask us to spend our time, our money, our energy? Do you live with open hands? And I hope we don't, any of us in here, have to ask that, face that serious situation. Would I really, literally die for Jesus? Some of us might. A lot of our brethren do. But we certainly can ask the question right here and now. Am I living the Christian life with open hands? And Jesus said it in no uncertain terms. If you're going to come after me, you must deny yourself. It was costly for me, and it will be costly for you. And Jesus adds an interesting phrase in verse 26. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains a whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? You think the cost is high. What price would you put on a human soul? All right. So what does this passage as a whole teach us? Certainly taken as a whole, I would suggest that we really do see encapsulated the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's as Jesus defines it himself. Faith in Christ as the Son of God. Acknowledgement that he is our Savior. He came to die and to rise again. And the fact that following Jesus Christ will cost us everything we've got. Following Jesus Christ will cost us everything we've got. Now, many of you may know the end of the story for St. Peter, the rock, the devil for a short time, then the great gospel preacher at Pentecost. At the end of his life, according to the traditions, several of the church fathers talk about this. Peter was carried to the city of Rome, And he was crucified. And when the time came to crucify him, Tertullian adds in origin also that Peter requested that he be crucified upside down. He said, I'm not worthy to die as Christ died. It's a very sobering picture to think of that, but I think we get the message that Peter understood the gospel. He knew who Jesus was, what he had done through his wonderful life uh, in giving his, himself on the cross and resurrection and calling us to live for him. And this is the good news, uh, my brothers and sisters. This is the good news of the gospel that transformed the lives of the twelve. It's the good news that has changed our lives if we're Jesus followers. And it's the good news that we share with a lost world. And upon this rock, the church has been built and will be built 
until Christ returns. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, a very meaningful text. We're thankful for this testimony that Matthew has left to us and the witness of the apostles that saw these things, that lived them, and continue to exhort us to be faithful followers. Lord, may all of us in this room be faithful. May we be serious about following Jesus Christ as we understand what the gospel really is, that he gave his all for us, and we desire to give our all back to him. In Jesus' name, amen.